And while you're finding John chapter 13, I will remind you, what is the purpose of Harvest Community Church? And if you don't remember, turn around and look back at that board to increase the health and size of God's church everywhere. We've been through a series of messages, three messages on prayer. Uh, We're talking a little bit about evangelism the next couple Sundays, Uh, and then there's going to be a couple other opportunities. But here's, here's one of the things that I fear when we talk about the mechanics of being a Christian sometimes, is sometimes I feel as a pastor that, and I've mentioned this to you before, and I think a lot of pastors feel this, that when we come in to church, um, sometimes pastors will go up front and, and, I, and I feel like I'm hitting a bunch of balloons up in the air that should be filled up with helium, but they're not filled with helium. See, if they were filled with helium, what would happen? They would just go up on their own. And sometimes as Christians, when we're trying to live the Christian life, we're not filled with the right kinds of things. And so when we're filled with an understanding of how much God loves us, when we're filled with an understanding of what grace is and how grace radically changes our interaction with each other and with God, those balloons will naturally rise. Rather than then people involved in ministry smacking up those balloons, encouraging you, get out there and evangelize, get out there and pray, do some prayer, do some this, do some that. See, that's not motivated by gospel transformation. See, if you are not, if you don't understand how much God loves you and and the grace of God that he expressed to you, no amount of hitting hitting you as a balloon is going to motivate you to do what God calls you to do as a follower, Right? So I think it's good for us to take an opportunity to look at what I think is the greatest tool for evangelism. But there's some danger in that great tool. What does love mean? It seems that a group of professionals posed this question to a group of four to eight-year-olds. I love these little stories. The answers they got, I think, were much deeper than I think perhaps some of us could express when they were asked what love is. Here's what one person said. When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. I think that's really cool, isn't it? Love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and smell each other. Love is what's in the room when you at Christmas, I'm sorry, love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. How many of you guys have been there? All the presents are done and you sit there and you recognize, wow, what a blessing God has provided. I, I agree with that young man of age seven, the wisdom that that young man just communicated. If you want to learn to love better, you should start with a friend you hate. That was Nika, age six. Love is when mommy sees daddy smelly and sweaty and still says he is handsomer than Robert Redford and Brad Pitt. (laughs) I know my older sister loves me because she gives me all her old clothes and has to go out and buy new ones. (laughs) You really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot. People forget. (laughs) Well, since the beginning of the church of Jesus Christ, one of the litmus tests for genuine faith has been what? Yes, we love each other. 
It's a community of believers that love one another. And we demonstrate that love for one another in very real, tangible ways that aren't inside the holy huddle, but produce fruit in the world we live in. It would be one thing for us just to spend our lives in this room learning how to love each other, and we would still fail, wouldn't we? It's another thing to learn to love each other in the context of life, with all of life's ups and downs, with the difficulties and struggles that we deal with in a culture that doesn't love God and doesn't want to hear about God. We have an opportunity every Sunday to have a laboratory of love, don't we? To gather and love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength as we worship him. And then to turn that love for God into love for one another. But I can guarantee you this. You can't do that in an hour and a half on Sunday. I'm going to use this as a shameless pitch for community group. Because you've got to connect with people outside of, of Sunday morning. You really do. You've got to connect and relate and and share the difficulties and the struggles that that only that intimate time can provide, that this doesn't provide. Because be honest, when when you come in this morning, this morning, yes, you, you loved each other, you encouraged each other, you hugged each other, you were patting each other on the back, but you were focused on finding a seat and getting your mind focused on worship. And and pretty soon, probably in the middle of my message, you're going to be thinking about this afternoon and all the things that you have piled up. They said, that's reality, because I think that too. But love is the litmus test for genuine faith. In other words, one of the ways in which you can tangibly see whether or not a community of people are, are Christians has been that Christians love one another. Of course, this is rooted in a statement that Jesus made to his disciples, and that's what we're going to look at in John chapter 13, starting at verse 31. So if you have your Bibles... Listen, I'm going to read and, and, and make some, uh, some observations and then some applications. Verse 31, when he, that's being Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Now get the scene here. Jesus is in the upper room. He's having his last supper with his disciples. The 12 disciples are eating with him. Jesus had just said earlier that one of the disciples would betray him. And John, who was known as what? The beloved disciple. Uh, In the Middle East, they didn't sit at tables with chairs. They sat on low tables and they had a whole bunch of pillows surrounding that tables and they would recline at table. That's how they... That's how they ate. Now, for those of us who struggle with a little bit of acid reflux, that's not a really good place to be when you're struggling with acid reflux. You need to be sitting up when, you're, when you struggle with acid reflux. But they reclined at table, and because Jesus, John was the beloved disciple, he was actually reclining on Jesus. So Jesus was leaning, resting on a pillow. John was probably resting on his chest, leaning. And, you know, Byron, you're kind of leaning over on Susie right now. You're kind of resting uh, on Susie. And there's other people who, well, yes, Brian, you're resting on your wife, aren't you? Jesus, John may have been doing the same thing. So Jesus just announces someone in the room is going to betray you. And because of, and and of course, in another gospel, Peter says, John, you're really close to Jesus. Ask him who it is. And so John leans up to Jesus and says, Jesus, who is this person that's going to betray you? And I'm, I'm convinced that Jesus didn't speak it out loud, but only to John because 
you find out in, in those verses that when Judas gets up, all the other disciples are bewildered as to what G- Judas is doing. They think he's gonna, that, John, that Jesus told him to go prepare something for the Passover because Jesus says to him, go do what you're going to go do and do it quickly. So they think he's doing something related to the Passover feast. But John hears Jesus' answer. And what is Jesus' answer? The person that I dip this bread with and give it to is the person I'm going to betray. I think, he was the, I think John was the only one who heard those words from Jesus. But the next thing Jesus says is kind of astounding. Now is the Son of Man glorified? Now. Think of the context. And God is glorified in him. At that very moment, when the final betrayal has been set in motion, that's when Jesus says, now. Now is the Son of Man glorified. Now that the final process of being handed over to be killed is in motion, that's when Jesus will shine with his greatest glory. Kind of astounding, isn't it? I think John was, the, of course, the only one of the disciples that could feel the amazement and the awe and the wonder of that moment. John watches Judas leave, and he can't believe what he's watching. And while John's mind is churning with all the emotions of the moment, even, in, even, even as Judas is on his way to, to do his dirty deeds, he hears Jesus say, now is the Son of Man glorified. And, and in my mind, I'm thinking, wait a minute. Well, why now? Well, what about Judas? Glorified? Betrayal? In the midst of betrayal, there's glory? And in what must have been one of the most emotionally charged moments of John's life, he hears some comforting words from Jesus. So let's pick up in verse 33. He says, little children, little children. That's what he calls his disciples. Yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What's Jesus saying? I think if I could sum up Jesus' words in, in my own words, I would say up until now, everyone has known his disciples because they have seen them following him. They've seen him pursuing him through Galilee, through Judea. They put their life on the line by just being identified with him. But now Jesus says, I'm not going to be here for you to follow anymore. So what's going to set you apart? Following his physical presence will not be the mark of of their discipleship anymore. So here's the new mark. The new commandment is love each other. That's going to be the defining thing. It's not going to be that I'm going to be walking out ahead of you and people are going to see you trailing in my dust. The defining mark of how they're going to know you're my follower is that you love each other. That's what Jesus is saying to them. So here's John with his heart bursting with conflicting emotions. Betrayal has been put on, put on a table. The glory of God is about to be seen. Jesus is leaving them. And in his absence, love for each other is to bind them together and bind them to him. Does this tell us anything? I think it should tell us something about John. 
This life, this moment in John's life was pretty profound and so moving and so memorable that it left a mark on him years later that we only find out in his writings in history. His entire first epistle, really, the, the epistle of 1 John, rehashes and reiterates this, this theme over and over and over and over again. And 1 John, I think, becomes for us our earliest and most authoritative commentary on what Jesus was trying to communicate in this Last Supper. But consider this, nowhere else in the New Testament does the term new commandment occur outside this story, except in the epistles of John, especially First and Second John. And of all the New Testament writers, only John picks up on the term new commandment. Look at John chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. You don't have to turn, but you can see it up here. Beloved, I am writing to you a new commandment. I'm sorry. I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you, have, that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. I think here are two things about the way John handles Jesus' new commandment. First, nowhere in any of his letters does John refer directly to the love of Jesus for his disciples. That's kind of bizarre, isn't it? See, he never says, love each other the way Jesus loved you. He always talks about the love of God for his children, the love of the Father. When Jesus comes into the picture, here's the point. God's love, God loved us in giving Jesus for us. And that's what he's pointing to. You know, John is not trying to diminish Jesus. He's trying to elevate the fact that Jesus isn't just this guy that hung out with us for three years. He's God. And when, when Jesus loves us, God loves us. And here's the first point on your map. When it comes to the one we should model our love on, John doesn't say love like Jesus. He says love like God. John chapter, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 and 11 says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the, the, the payment for our sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And just contemplate for a moment what it means that God loved us. Sovereign creator of the universe, utterly just God, that he loved his creation who was fallen and separated from him. Think about that. Think about that in relation to who you love and how you love them. It's not easy to love the unlovables, is it? We were the unlovables. We were the unlovables in that equation. That's how God loved us. He loved us when we were not lovable. He loved us, in fact, as Scripture says, we were his enemies. That's how we should love. So maybe that little girl who said, the best way to learn to love people is to start with your enemies, maybe that's where we need to start. Loving those who are most difficult to love. Again, in his first letter, John isn't minimizing Jesus when he puts all the focus on the love of God. I think he's maximizing Jesus. God was loving us in that upper room. God was loving us in the process of betrayal. God was loving us in Jesus 
in his death on the cross. Every act of Jesus, the Son, was an act of the Father. In fact, Jesus said it. Apart from my Father, I, can't, I don't do anything. If I'm doing it, my Father's doing it. Here's a second thing I think we need to think about, about the way John handles this new commandment. Jesus said in verse 35, by all, by, I'm sorry, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I think John pondered very deeply the phrase, my disciples, and what must happen for that to be known. Here's the second point on your map. To be a disciple is not just to be outwardly aligned with a Christian church or a Christian movement or a Christian name, but miraculously changed by the Spirit into a person with a new heart of love for the Father and for his followers. The church is different than a social club. The church is not the Rotary Club. It's not the Lions Club. It's not the Kiwanis Club. The church is different. The church is set apart from those things. And it's not that those organizations don't do good things. But I'm not going to look at the Rotary Club or the Lions Club or the Kiwanis Club and say, see how they loved one another and make a direct correlation to who God is in Jesus Christ. See, the world looks at the church and they, they ought to make a direct correlation to how much God loves his creation because of sending his son Jesus into the world. And if we're not helping people make that, that connection, something's missing in our love for one another. And what's missing from those worldly organizations is a miraculous change by the Spirit. That's what's missing. And love is how you can know this has happened. 1 John 4, 7 and 8, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love, hear this, does not know God, because God is love. 1 John 3:10 and 14 by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother do you see the connection between righteousness and love we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers 1 John 2:9 and 10 whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. These are strong words. And, and, and we gloss over them, don't we? we? Sometimes I think we think if we say we love each other, we've done enough. It wouldn't be enough for me to say I love my wife. Because it's easy to say it. It's not easy to demonstrate it. Not because she's difficult to love, I'm the one who finds it difficult to be loving because I'm a human who's fallen but redeemed. And I think if you think about it, you struggle with that too. You struggle with being loving. Or as Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. 
All people will have good evidence that you are born of God and know God and are a child of God and are in the light and no longer in darkness if you love one another. People will know you are truly a disciple of Jesus by whether you have been given a new heart of trust in Jesus and love for his followers. And I, I don't insert that word trust because it's, it's, it's a new concept. You, you have to trust Jesus. It's included in this idea, when John thought about the new commandment, he knew that the new commandment was not an isolated commandment to love, but a commandment embedded in the call of Jesus to trust him as our sin-bearing lamb of God for everything we need. See, if I don't trust Jesus to take care of what I need, then, then I really can't trust myself to love you the way you need to be loved. I can't deny myself if I don't understand what he denied in loving you and in taking, taking on that form of a servant. Think what he, Jesus did earlier in John 13. What, how did he demonstrate his love in, in the beginning of John 13? He stood up at the meal, he took off his outer garments, he wrapped a towel around himself, and he washed his disciples' feet. He demonstrated that kind of love for us. He demonstrated that kind of other-focused love. In other words, in John's mind, and this is your third map point, Jesus' command to believe on him and his command to love each other are inseparable. They're one and the same. If you say you believe God and you don't love one another, you really don't believe God because what you believe activates how, should activate and change how you live or you don't truly believe it. You only truly act upon that which you truly believe. If you don't truly believe Jesus then you won't act upon this command to love. So see, I think together, he calls them one commandment. John calls them one commandment. He says this is his commandment, that we believe in the name and we love one another. People won't know you are a disciple if you make no profession of faith in Jesus, will they? They won't know you're a disciple if you say nothing. But if you declare yourself to be a disciple of Jesus, then your love for others will, will be the defining activity. It, it's easy to hide behind empty words, isn't it? It's not easy to hide behind acts of service and kindness and, and self-giving love. They're going to know you're his disciples by your love, not by your words. They're going to know we're his disciples by our love, not by our words. Are you a true believer? Are you really a disciple? A learner of Jesus? A follower of Jesus? Have you really been changed by Jesus? They will all know if you have love for one another. Love confirms that your profession of faith is real. Why is it that love proves discipleship? Why is it that when disciples love each other, there is such good evidence that they are true disciples of Jesus? Why is this one another love so compelling? 
I think the answer comes when we ponder why Jesus calls this commandment new. Because in reality, it's not a new commandment. Look at Leviticus 19.18 on the screen. Jesus said, or I'm sorry, in Leviticus, Moses said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It wasn't a new concept to the Jews. So what makes it new in the context of this upper room? What appears to be new in the way we're to love, namely as Jesus loved us? Verse 34 says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. I think one of the things that makes it different is that never before had the Son of God come into the world and laid down his life for his people. See, that in itself had never happened. This degree of greatness making this degree of sacrifice had never happened. That's new, isn't it? The incarnation of Jesus is new. But in the manner Jesus lived and walked in this earth ought to give us some clues as to what it means for us to love one another. So is Jesus simply saying, if you imitate this kind of sacrifice and loving each other, you'll be fulfilling the newness of this commandment? Is it just about imitation or is there something else? I, I think it's something else. I, and the reason I say it's something else because it's all too easy to imitate and, and, and be emptiness behind it. It's all too easy to play the part. We're dramatic people. We put masks on all the time. It's easy for us to put the masks on and pretend like we're imitating Jesus. But I think it's more than imitation. If we listen to what John says in his first letter about what makes this commandment new, I think we see there's more going on than imitation. So here's the way John puts it in 1 John 2.8. It's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away, the true light is already shining. Now stay with me for a second. There's a little bit of logic that's required for us to put together some sequence here. In other words, what makes this love new is that it, it signifies and, and symbolizes the arrival of the glory of God. His kingdom. That's what Jesus was announcing over and over and over. When he would go heal somebody, what would he say to them? The kingdom of God is near you. When they, when they would turn and repent, he'd say the kingdom of God is near you. See, Jesus came to inaugurate a new kind of life. And there are pretenders, there are hypocrites. The, the Pharisees represented the exact opposite of this kingdom kind of life that Jesus came to bring in. They were, they were all put together on the outside, but had nothing good on the inside. He called them whitewashed tombs, didn't he? I don't want to be a whitewashed tomb. I don't want to be all put together on the outside and full of dead bones and decay on the inside. I don't. But that's a very real temptation and tendency for us, isn't it? See, when Jesus came, he said, I come to give them life and life to the full, life more abundant, life in the kingdom, in a kingdom kind of life now. And I think all too often we as Christians think that we just have to kind of bide our time while we're here on the earth and wait until Jesus brings us into the new heavens and the new earth. See, I think we can participate in a kingdom kind of life now. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. Think about all those things in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The ethics of the kingdom that Jesus was calling us to live in. 
If we live in those things now, we are actually participating, participating, not just imitating, participating in the kingdom kind of life now, in the world that we live in. It doesn't mean that, that when Jesus returns for his second coming, that that's just going to kind of be a hiccup in, in history. It doesn't mean that if, if we just live in the kingdom ethics kind of now, we can usher in God's kingdom in all its fullness. No. But we can participate in it now. That's what's compelling, I think, to the world, isn't it? To see the kingdom kind of ethics, how we love one another, how we serve one another, how we care for one another, how we nurture one another, how we discipline one another, how we work through conflict with one another. See, those are the, type, those are the types of things when we, live, when, we, when we live according to the kingdom kind of ethic that people look into, this, into, into us as Christians and say, wow, there's something different about them. But if we only live those kingdom kind of ethics when we step into this building, then it means nothing. It's easy to love those who will love you back, isn't it? Jesus said it. It's not easy to love those who are not going to love you back, and they're not going to return it. That's the world. But there's something special about this. When Messiah comes, the scripture says, in Habakkuk, 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 I don't know how you pronounce it, that guy. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I think we're in that time now. Do you realize that, that in the past 100 years, more people have been brought to Jesus Christ than in all of history combined? There are 20,000 people turning to Jesus in China every day. Every day. And don't be startled by this, but the center of Christianity used to be America. It is no longer America. It has moved from America to South America, Africa, and Asia. God is doing amazing things in the world, isn't he? But, but all is not lost for this country. We as Christians have to stand up and start living the kingdom kind of ethic, don't we? And it starts with love. His coming was the dawn of the kingdom of God, wasn't it? He was the light of the world. And he said in verse 31 that this night the Son of Man would be glorified in God in him, wasn't he? This night, that night in the, uh, after the upper room, the light would shine most brightly when Jesus laid down his life for his friends. And then John says in the next verse, next verses, John 1 John 2, 9 and 10, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. In other words, what makes the disciples' love for each other new and this commandment for it new is they're not just copying the light. We're in the light. We're, we're part of this, this kingdom that God has inaugurated when Jesus came into the world. We're part of extending that kingdom in, in the kingdom that we still live. It's what the word ambassador means. They're ambassadors of other countries in Washington, D.C. And, and you know that the, the soil where those homes are and where these ambassadors lives is not American soil. It is considered the soil of the country they represent. 
And see, you and I live in little outposts of the kingdom of God wherever we live. And that soil is not this world's. It is God's. And we have an opportunity to live in a kingdom kind of life. And it starts with love first. And to let the ethics of the kingdom permeate everything we do, everywhere we go. As we live as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. But if they're not going to see that ethic lived out in our midst, then they're not, they're not going to submit to it. The world is not going to turn to it. They're going to claim hypocrisy, and they do, don't they? I think uh, Jesus has given us a, a tall order this morning. I think this is how Jesus sees the new... Uh, John and Jesus see the newness of this command. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. How have you laid down your life for your friends lately? And and I'm not talking about pushing them out of the way of a bus that's hurtling in front of them. I'm not talking about diving in front of a bullet. Perhaps that's the easy way to lose your life for somebody. The hard way is to prefer them, to deny yourself to deny your dreams and desires, your expectations, your perspectives. That's hard. That's really hard. Because we live in a culture that takes great pride in in our individualism, don't we? And that individualism permeates the church. I've been in church settings, and thankfully there is no There's no situations in this congregation yet of discipline, of biblical discipline, but I've been in church settings where where people have spurned the the discipline of the church. They've spurned someone coming alongside them and saying, listen, you claim to be a follower of Jesus, but your life is not in keeping with that. Can we help you come back onto that straight and narrow? I don't want anything to do with you. It too easily happens. John says that what makes the commandment new is this love was the arrival of the light of God, the glory of God. And that the commandment for us to love each other just as Jesus loved was not mainly a command for imitation, but participation. John says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. When we love each other in obedience to the new commandment, we are loving each other with the love of Christ. His love is being perfected in our love. This is not mainly imitation. It's mainly participation. Our lives are in Jesus, in the light. Our love is his love. That's what it means to abide. I mean, Jesus said, unless you abide in me, you can't bear fruit. And see, we do. We try to bear fruit, don't we? We try to create those feelings of love for one another. We try to create those feelings of concern for one another and care. You can't create those if, they're not, if they don't come from a genuine, transformed heart. You can't. You can't manufacture them. You can't pluck off the bad fruit and staple on the good stuff. And we try. Jesus comes back to this whole idea in John chapter 15 and makes, I think, the meaning more clear. He says, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. 
And how do we love like that? John 15, 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. That's our newness. That's the newness of, the, of this command. The, 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 this ability to love the unlovely doesn't come from whipping it up in our hearts. It comes from abiding in Jesus. In a sense, we become the conduits of Jesus loving the unlovable. We become the conduits as his love flows through through us as we abide in him more and more. It's not about creating feelings of love for one another. It's about living in them and allowing our love for Christ to be so overfilling that it overflows onto each other. And see, that's how I can love my wife best. I can love my wife best by being so in love with Jesus that she gets the overflow of my love for Jesus. Wives, you can love your spouses best by being so in love with Jesus that they get the overflow. Men and women who work, you, can, you work your best when you're so in love with Jesus that your work is an outflow and an expression of your love for him. See, that's what it means to abide in his love and allow it to come. See, I don't want to come here Sunday, day in and day out, and, and, and try to work up love for everybody. That's hard. I want to be so in love with Jesus that it just naturally flows. Where are you in that? Where, where are you in that process? Do you know his word enough that it, that it abides in you? Do you know his word enough that it transforms you? That's where it needs to start. And this is our last map point. The reason the love we have for each other shows that we are truly Jesus' disciples is that it's only possible because we are grafted into the life and love of Christ. It's only possible because we are grafted into the life and love of Christ. We love as he loved because we love with his love. As Christians, I think we're always looking for something to mark us, aren't we? For, for, for a period of time, it was WWJD bracelets, and we would see a WWJD bracelet and go, oh, you must be a Christian. Maybe it was a bumper sticker. Even Calvin and Hobbes had a, bumper, had a bumper sticker where Calvin is sitting in front of a cross, kneeling in front of a cross. I've seen him on trucks, pickup trucks. If, if you've been at Harvest long enough, you have a, there's, there's praise 1016 bracelets. There's, there's even crosses. We wear crosses. And it, you know, it's, I, I'm wearing a cross today, and it is a mystery to me that, that we have turned an instrument of death into an icon. But, but what, what we're trying to communicate is, is that our, we want our lives to be surrendered to this Jesus. So I don't have any problems with wearing jewelry, crosses. I, I, sometimes I do have problems with folks wearing crosses who have no intentions of living for Jesus because it's just jewelry. That bothers me. But we look for things to mark us and identify us. Frog bracelets, free, freely relying on God. So with all these things, we're always looking to identify ourselves. But what did Jesus say was the mark that would identify us most and best? Love one another. 
That's the defining mark. Again, it's not a love that we kind of manufacture. It's not a love that we whip up. It's not a love that we produce. I think it's true as we love one another. It's true in a marriage too. Love is a decision. It's not a feeling. And we need to come every day and decide to love each other. We need to come every Sunday and decide to love each other, warts and all. Not out of my strength, not out of your strength, but out of the strength of our understanding of how much God loves us in Jesus Christ. That's about filling the, the, the balloon with helium, not just filling it with my air and then hitting it up with my hand. It's allowing, how, it's allowing our understanding of how much Jesus loves us and God loved us in Jesus to fill us with the right kind of air that's going to motivate the right kind of love and the right kind of reaching out. And again, we could sit in this room for weeks and months and years and not fully learn to love each other the way we're called to love, but that shouldn't keep us from keeping that, that carrot in front of us. To be motivated by a desire to love one another and to decide every day to love one another. And then to turn that out into the world that God's put us and to be those ambassadors that live the ethics of the kingdom in the world that we live in. How are you going low in your service for one another? Just a few questions before I have the worship team come up. Actually, why don't you guys come up now? How are you going low in service for one another? How are you, in a sense, taking off your outer garments and wrapping that towel of service around and washing each other's feet like Jesus did, his disciples? It doesn't necessarily mean you have to physically wash each other's feet, but part of me wonders why. Why not? How will you lay down your lives, your privileges for one another? How will you let your love shine outside these four walls to the unlovable? to the weak, to the lonely, to the widow, to the orphan. How will we be the hands and feet of Christ in this world if we can't love one another? That's the other truth. We really can't live this if we're not willing to love one another. We would be hypocrites if we can't love each other here and, and then go out and try to love the world. 